השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם. פנטסטיק הולדי. hope everybody here had a productive fast, easy fast like we talked about. hopefully it was easy, but not necessarily because you uh, didn't miss the food, but rather because you were busy praying. if it's just because you didn't miss food, you could fast every week. Uh, But if it's because you're busy praying, then Bezat Hashem, it will be a very productive fast. Um, so uh, today it's, uh, we'll do a few things about Sukkot uh, that uh, we talked about briefly last week. We'll also continue with Perkei Avot series number 66. Uh, take your questions and uh, go over a few things that I think that um, most people... forget about after the Amin Noraim, after you have uh, Rosh Hashanah is behind us, you have the uh, Slichot is behind us, the 10 days of uh, Tshuva is behind us, Yom Kippur is behind us, now starts the party. Ideally, that's really what it's supposed to be. But uh, the one thing that we don't want to forget about is all the promises we made Hashem. During the holiday, when we asked them, or at least you were supposed to if you're smart, when you're asking Hashem to give you another chance, give you another year, give you another life, give you another uh, opportunity, give you more of things that you already have, whether it be money, children, opportunities, and so on. So uh, we, ask, we ask for a lot of things. There's not one person... that didn't ask for something on Yom Kippur, or on Rosh Hashanah. And uh, if you notice, this year's uh, Yom Kippur fell on Shabbat. Now on Shabbat, usually, usually, there's, everyone knows that you're not allowed to pray for yourself on Shabbat. So if, let's say, for example, someone wants to pray for Parnassah or for uh, health or things like that, you're not allowed to pray for that on Shabbat. What are you supposed to do on Shabbat? You're supposed to pray to Hashem. Sanctify His names, celebrate the day. It's a big day. You're not supposed to ask for stuff on Shabbat. But on this Shabbat, we had Yom Kippur, and there's not one person that didn't ask for something. Why? The whole tefillah is asking Hashem, save me. Hashem, put me in the book of life. Hashem, give me panasah. Hashem, put me not only in the book of life, but in the book of life of the tzaddikim. I don't want to be a book of life of the losers. I want to be a book of life of the tzaddikim. Moshe Rabbeinu, I want to be next, next, right next to him. Me and him. I want to be right next to him. The tzaddikim, the this, the this. All, all, you, all you did is ask. So it's the opposite. So what's the... Uh, how are you allowed to ask? You're not allowed to ask on Shabbat. But on Yom Kippur, everybody asked. The tefillah. For even if you didn't want to ask, if you do the tefillah, you have to ask. So how could it be? It could be because in reality, there's one way that you're allowed to put Shabbat on hold. There's one reason you're allowed to put Shabbat on hold. So for example, if someone wants to drive on Shabbat, 
They're not allowed to drive on, Sh- on Shabbat to Beknesset. doesn't matter if they live 500 miles away, or five miles away, or half a mile away, or doesn't make a difference. doesn't matter if they're sick, doesn't matter if they're old, doesn't matter if they're, uh, I don't know, it doesn't make a difference. You're not allowed to drive to Beknesset on Shabbat under any condition. There's never ever a reason for you to drive to Beknesset on Shabbat unless you are 911. Unless you're at the hospital and you have to speak Koch Nefesh. Where are you allowed to drive on Shabbat? The hospital. You're allowed to drive on Shabbat to save a life. Otherwise, you're never allowed to drive on Shabbat. Why are you allowed to drive on Shabbat to save a life? Because the halacha is, is that we are allowed to put Shabbat on hold for someone to save his life so he can keep more Shabbats. We break one Shabbat for him, not because the Shabbat is less important. It's because the Shabbat is more important. Shabbat is actually more important than life. We're able to break more. We'll break. We'll break one Shabbat, not because it's not an important Shabbat. We're breaking the Shabbat because we want him to keep more Shabbats. So that we has an opportunity to do one mitzvot. So it's on hold. So that's the only time you're allowed to drive on Shabbat or break Shabbat. So now, technically, this Yom Kippur, we all did something we're not really allowed to do on Shabbat. So how come we're allowed to to do it? How come we're allowed to ask for stuff? Not only ask for stuff, we didn't stop asking. The beginning of the holiday, we asked. The middle of the holiday, they were asking. During the break, we're asking. After the break, we're asking. At the end of the holiday, we didn't stop asking. Why? Because technically, it's pikuach nefesh. Technically, Yom Kippur, it's pikuach nefesh. Everyone's at risk. And it's not a happy announcement, but everyone sees that despite whether we oblige or not, despite whether we agree or not, despite whether we're ready or not, judgment begins. Judgment already began on Rosh Hashanah, and judgment continues now. The tragedy that happened in Las Vegas, I think it was last night, so many people being killed, so many people being injured, shot, and so on, Sad. It's a sad, not just they, they, they died, it's sad that most likely they died sinners. That's the saddest part. If someone died, but it's Rabbi Akiva. It's sad for us. It's sad for us that he died because we don't have Rabbi Akiva anymore. Imagine Rabbi Akiva, he is giving you a shiul. The table will start doing tshuva. Table start doing tshuva. It's the chatanu, avinu, pashanu. The table start doing tshuva. The chairs will stop. Rabbi Akiva giving you shiur. Moshe Rabenu saw Rabbi Akiva giving shiurim off of the extra little line on top of the Hebrew letters. They called keter, like little crowns. They put on the Hebrew letters. He used to give a shiur, a whole alachic shiur, on the secrets you would find from the crowns on top of the letters. So if Rabbi Akiva died, okay, we're sad. Why? Because we don't have Rabbi Akiva. But we're not sad for Rabbi Akiva. We're not saying misken Rabbi Akiva. Why? He's in Gan Eden. He's Allah He's hanging out. He's got pleasure till after eternity. But now, when someone dies a sinner, it's very sad. Why? Because we know the end is not the same. The end is not pretty. As much as people would like to deny that there's two choices after this life, 
Anyone that denies that there is not just Gan Eden, there's also a Gehenom, and that Gehenom is mentioned in the Torah many, many times, in multiple places, in different names. There's seven names for Gehenom. There's seven names from Gehenom. It's not just Gehenom. Anyone that denies what happens in Gehenom, the time frame, all the details of Gehenom, is denying the Torah itself. Why? It's one of the 13 principles of faith. One of the 13 principles of faith, the Rambam put together, he says that if you don't believe one of these, you're not Jewish. Your Judaism is on suspension. What is it, one of them? Believing that Hashem rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Now how is it that Hashem punishes the wicked if many of them are driving Ferraris? Where's the punishment? Obviously this shows the punishment is not always here. The punishment comes after this life. This life is a uh, corridor. It's a short thing. You hear what? 50 years, 7 years, 100 years, 120 years. In comparison to eternity, it's nothing. It's a rounding error. It's a comparing uh, Am Yisrael as a number. 15, 20, 25 million, however many there are. In comparison to 7.5, almost 8 billion people in the world today. 20 million is a rounding error. You don't say... 7.923 billion. 7.9 billion. Whether it's 20 million or 40 million, you don't say it. It's just 7.9. It's not 7.92 or 7.94. It's 7.9. Meaning that the whole population of Am Yisrael, even if it was double what it is today, it's still a rounding error. So obviously... Much more than this life is beyond. It's beyond where we are right now. There's much more to life. This is just a stop. And anyone that comes here, and instead of collecting their points, collecting their diamonds, collecting their mitzvot, and the one opportunity they have to collect it in, while during their life, and they die not only not having points, not only not having mitzvot, the spiritual diamonds, but instead they die having the opposite. It's very sad. If you know what's happening, if you know what actually happens, it's very, very sad. So today, one of the things we're going to talk about is one of the reasons... One of the main things, one of the main drivers that gets us into one place or the other. Money. Money is something that could help you go to Gan Eden or have VIP section in Geno. Whichever one you want, you choose. But it's a very difficult test. And as much as everybody here is scared of poverty, everyone's scared of poverty. People work overtime because they're scared of poverty. People get second jobs because they're scared of poverty. People steal because they're scared of poverty. They steal. Mama, steal because they're scared of poverty. It says in the Pasuk, Shlomo Amedech says to Hashem, don't give me too much in Ecclesiastes, but don't make me poor because then I'll end up stealing and being a Chilul uh, Hashem. Desecrate your name. A Jew stealing, it's Chilul Hashem. So don't let me steal. Don't let me, don't put me in a point where I have to steal. But as difficult as poverty is, 
Hashem says that the test of, mo- of having a lot of money is more difficult. It's less likely you're going to go to Gan Eden with a lot of money. Less likely. Why? You have more opportunities to make sins, and we'll talk about it today. So, the situation that's happening around the world shows that we all have judgment, whether we like it or not, whether we're ready or not. Now, during this event of Pikuach Nefesh, Mamash Pikuach Nefesh, where we were saying to Hashem, please give us another chance. And now we're excited it's over. Everyone's happy that Yom Kippur is over. Excited for celebration holiday. Sukkot, you're actually obligated to be happy. V'samachta b'chagecha. Actually, that's the mitzvot, one of the main mitzvot of the Chag. You have to be happy. Have to. You have to find a way to be happy. Which is the reason why, if, let's say, for example, being in your sukkah doesn't make you happy, because it's too hot, or it's too cold, or it's too this, or it's too that, then you're not allowed to be in a sukkah. It's pasula. It's not a kosher sukkah. So a lot of people, myself included, when I uh, first started building a sukkah, I'm like, oh, it's going to be so hot, it's not comfortable, it's not this, it's not that. So the Rav says, oh, okay, so you don't have a sukkah then. So no, no, I have a sukkah. I have a sukkah. It's just that it's in Florida, and it's hot, and it's this, and it's that. It's like, okay, so you don't have a sukkah. Go buy a sukkah. I'm like, no, I have a sukkah. I have. I bought it. It's, Oh, $1,200 that I didn't even have. Well, it's mitzvah. Hashem has to pay for it. Gemara, Masechet Beitzah. Gemara, Masechet Beitzah, page 15b. Hashem Yitbarach says to Am Yisrael, go borrow money to sanctify the day, whether it's Shabbat or holiday, and I'll pay back the loan. Go borrow money to sanctify the day, because you don't have any money. You have to borrow money. But you're borrowing the money. Now you're borrowing the money to buy a car. You're not buying, borrowing money to go on vacation. You're borrowing the money to celebrate the holiday. Buy sukkah. Buy the food for the holiday. Whatever. Go borrow money, Hashem says. And I'll pay for it. Why would I pay for it? Because you believed in me. So, this is what. So, even though I didn't have much money, I said, listen, we need a sukkah. First time, we moved from New York. In New York, we didn't have a sukkah because we lived on the 35th floor. You can't really build a sukkah on the 35th floor. And uh, I would go to my brother's house for, for sukkot, but still, it's, you, know, you want your own sukkah. So we came to Florida and uh, wanted to get a sukkah, and it's expensive, and it's this, and it's, you have all the excuses in the world not to do it, especially the money aspect of it. But then you have you know you have to do it. But then I said, okay, I build the sukkah. After I build the sukkah, I'm already melting because it's like 900 degrees in this state, and I'm hot anyway. I'm hot in cold weather, let alone in this hot weather. It's cold in New York. I'm hot. I'm always hot. So here, I'm hot just getting off the airport. I'm already hot. So anyway, so I tell my rabbi, listen, it's too hot. He says, oh, so you don't have a sukkah. So what is so? I said, okay, I have a sukkah. So what do I do? He goes, you have to go buy something to make it cooler in the sukkah. Because without it, it's not a kosher sukkah. If you're uncomfortable in your sukkah, it's not a sukkah. So 
So you have to go buy something to make it comfortable. If you're not comfortable, stay home. What kind of comfortable? I thought comfortable, comfortable enough to sit in. Comfortable enough to sit in, have a couple of bites of the meal, and go, leave. Go eat the rest of the food inside, or comfortable enough to, okay, I'll eat the meal, but that's it. Eat the meal, you eat the meal. You say maybe a Dvar Torah, try to do the whole thing quick, maybe finish it off in 25 minutes flat, as if you're on a race or you just came out of jail. You want to finish food flat. Why? Because it's hot. You're used to it. In America, we're like the privileged people. Chas the air conditioner is broken. It's pikuach nefesh. The rest of the world doesn't have air conditioning, Bechlal. We, the air conditioner is broken. We're at 76 degrees. Already we're suffering. Suffering. We start doing vidui. Because the air conditioner didn't work. I'm telling you, myself included. I tell you, it was kapalat avanot in my house. And uh, during the Chag, this new house we moved in. We didn't know that the, uh, the, the um, previous tenant programmed the uh, air conditioning to really hot weather. To like, well, like really, I don't know, 78 degrees or something. And at some point during the day, it's like 85 so Miskena, my wife, I was at the Beknesset most of the time. She tells me, by the time I come home, I come back from Beknesset, and I see my wife is my mask, like melting on the floor. And the kids are like, you know, looking for like something. She's like, give us some water, save us, save us. And look, why is it so hot in the house? It's like the air conditioner is programmed to go to 85 degrees at uh, 11 o'clock or some time during the day. Shem and Achim, all holiday, 85 degrees, Miskena. But that's but the thing is though, if you go to Israel, they don't have air conditioning. Unless it's for somebody really rich, they don't have air conditioning. You go to different places in Europe, it's not standard to have air central air. Anywhere else other than America. So here, even if it's seven for me, I need to have a house seventy one degrees. In New York I used to keep it sixty nine, but now I have kids. So I can't torture them. Seventy one degrees. So, if it's 73, suffering for me. Suffering. But that's, that's mamash. That's, that's a, uh, spoiled. But for us, that's kaparat avonot. What a life Hashem gave us. Hashem. So now, <laughs> I was thinking about my wife, Miskina, how hot she was during the holiday. So she uh, says, listen, you have to go to Bikne. I said, pray, this, that. I didn't, couldn't go to Bikne. I have the kids. I have to go my own kapalat What do I do? Seven, it's 85 degrees. 85 degrees during uh, this, this heat. It was, it was colder outside. It's colder outside. So, so anyway, um, we have our holidays. We have... Sukkot, we have to prepare to make sure that it's really comfortable. How comfortable? How comfortable does it have to be? Comfortable enough for you to sleep in. Why? Because that's the commandment. That's the commandment. You have to sleep inside the sukkah. The guy, the man. The man has to sleep in the sukkah. The wife is not obligated to sleep in the sukkah. Now the... Uh, Thank you for coming. מה תיאלף? תקלו מיתבות. תרבה לך. תרבה לך.
Baruch Hashem, this is a Holocaust survivor. So please rise. Give some kavod. Make make it make it uh, please. Not a surprise. You should have told me. Would have prepared. Let him sit, please. Let him sit there. Oh Hashem. Seeing it's a it's a uh, one of the most amazing things is when a uh, his wife we just met recently and she told me that uh, they're uh, watching the shulim. Said Oh Hashem. Of all types of people watching the shiurim, so Yom Kippur, you obligate to sleep in the sukkah. It's very, very important. If you can't sleep in a sukkah because it's too hot, then it's not a sukkah. It's a tent for camping. So you have to put. So what? I, so this year, Bezat Hashem, I'm gonna try to see, put something. We have the fan already. I'm gonna try to see maybe I can put the air conditioner in a sukkah. It's so hot. But you have to do it. Now what happens, I ask, I have a few students that live in apartments. In apartments, and uh, not everybody allows, not everybody has a balcony. And even if you have a balcony, not everyone allows people to build a sukkah on a balcony. And this is not Israel where no one, you know, in Israel, you build it, you don't ask the landlord anything. You just do whatever you want. Here in America, you do whatever you want, they take down your sukkah. So you can't do whatever you want. So, uh, as far as sukkah, if you're able to build, build, obviously. If you can't build, then to eat, you have to find a place to eat. You have to find a place to eat your sukkah. You're not allowed to eat bread outside of the sukkah. You have to find a place to eat. And sleep, if you can't find a sukkah to sleep in, then you sleep, then you're patu, you're anus, you stay at home. Now, if you're mamash, don't have any friends, and you can't find someone to host you, to go to their sukkah and have dinner there, or you just can't make it there, you don't feel good. It's a real reason, not an excuse. Like you don't feel like, you know, it's a, uh, you know, like me, where you're suffering at 72 degrees. Mamash, you have a real, you have a real reason of why you can't go. You don't have uh, somebody you know, no one's inviting you, whatever the reason is, then you're a noose. Then you can eat at home. But in reality, you are missing out on one of the biggest mitzvot in the Torah. So you have to f- do whatever you can to find a way to, at the very least, eat at the sukkah. And Baruch Hashem, in America, one of the advantages that we have is that it's very easy to be Jewish. Even though there's 40% anti-Semitism, it's still very easy to be Jewish in most of America. So almost every single place, synagogue, sometimes restaurants, they have a sukkah. So you can go eat at the sukkah. So even if you don't have any friends, you have a synagogue. So go to the synagogue. The, sukkah, the, the synagogue has a sukkah. The second thing about Sukkot is that uh, there is a little bit of a uh, confusion about what's about the uh, these Sukkot that they made popular over the last few years. Uh, I forgot what they're called, um, but they you put you pretty much put the pieces together. It's like Lego, uh, and they have three strings on the side. Because you're supposed to have something that's like the uh, equivalent of a wall. And there's a of how it's supposed to be a, a difference in space between each string. 
The problem is with those strings or the, the felt is that if wind comes, the felt moves. The strings move. And if it moves even an inch, it's pasul. The whole, the whole sukkah is pasulah. So you have to replace those things. Uh, that's what comes with the sukkah itself when you buy it from the store. Uh, so you have to replace it either with metal poles that you connect from one side to the other on all three sides or with like a uh, plastic or a wooden fence, like small, like one-foot fence. I went to a Home Depot yesterday. Uh, it's like 10 bucks, 12 bucks each one of these little fences. You get, you know, depends how big your sukkah is, three, four, five of them, however many you need, and you have a kosher sukkah. And the reason why, because if you stay with just those strings, you might as well stay at home. It's no sukkah. So it's a very, very big mitzvah, but it's a very easy mitzvah to ruin. Very easy mitzvah to just not do right. So that's the second thing. Uh, third thing is, it's extremely important to learn Torah in, in a sukkah. You have to spend, especially the man. The man has to spend as much time in the sukkah as possible to such an extent that the mikubalim said you shouldn't leave the sukkah at all. The whole holiday. Even to go to the bathroom. In the old days, they would go next to the sukkah. They'd go next to the sukkah, they would cover their, obviously... But uh, they would not. They would try to do everything possible not to leave the sukkah, even to go to Beknesset. Lulav, everything that we do inside the sukkah. They say there's such big dusha being in the sukkah, you shouldn't leave it. Now, today, obviously, things are a little bit different. You still go to Beknesset and so on, but you get the point. The point is, be in the sukkah as much as possible. If you're learning, learn in the sukkah. If you're eating, eat in the sukkah. As much time as you can spend in the sukkah, spend. That's, so that's why it's good that tomorrow, before the Chag starts, uh, you know, you have only a day and a half before the Chag starts, spend as much time as you can preparing. You need to put a, a few extra um, fans, put a few extra fans. Put air, if you could put air conditioner, put air conditioner. Whatever you got to put in there just to make it comfortable. Because if it's not comfortable, it's not a sukkah. So those are the few things. Now the other thing about Sukkot that we're so excited about the party because it's a very big day. And the, uh, the Torah says that this is a day, technically, that if the Goim knew how significant the uh, Sukkot is, they would celebrate. Because this is a day that Amisa will bring Korbanot for all 70 nations. Every day, they will bring Korbanot to the Beit HaMikdash in their name. So if the Goim knew that we're actually bringing korbanot, we're bringing sacrifices in their names, not only they wouldn't have destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, they would have actually sent their armies to protect the Beit HaMikdash. Because all of their parnasah, all of their good, all of everything that they have depends on what happens now. So they would protect the Beit HaMikdash. But unfortunately they didn't know, so they ruined it. But we get so carried away with the party, which we're supposed to, that sometimes we forget about the promises we made during Yom Kippur and during Rosh Hashanah. When we ask Hashem for another chance, for another year, let me live another year so I can do more mitzvot, let me live another year so I can do more tzedakah, let me do this, let me... You want another chance. Nobody wants to die. doesn't matter whether you're uh, 50 or you're 5, it doesn't make a difference. Noach, over 600 years old, doesn't want to die. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to live. So you say, Hashem, give me more chance. The problem is that we made a lot of promises. We made a deal with Hashem. If you listen to the show, you made a deal with Hashem. So the Mishnah in Baba Metziah of uh, 49 says, 
So it says, whoever paid the punishment to the generation of the flood, Doramabul, and the generation of the Tower of Babel, Dorapalaga, he will pay punishment to, to the one who doesn't stand by his own words. So what does this mean? What's the pshat here? It says, the same one that punished those two awful generations. Who is it? It's God. God punished the generation of Noah for many reasons. They were stealing, they were going against uh, nature, they were going against a lot of different things. The last thing that uh, was uh, the, the killer was also they were committing murder, both through actually killing people, also by wasting seed, which we learned in the past. Now, Hashem destroyed them. The Tower of Babel, they try to build a tower, we're going to learn about in a couple of weeks, to go to war with God. Because they figured, listen, Hashem destroyed the world after 1600 years after He created the world. So maybe He, de- he builds a world 1600 years later, He destroys it and builds it again. So let's build a tower, be ahead of Him. Let's build a tower. So the next time He wants to flood the world, we're already going to be on top of the tower. So he can't drown us. So only 300 years later, a little over 300 years after the, the, the uh, Noah's flood, they're already going against God. And it's not like they don't know it's, it happened. Shem, Shem is still alive. He's telling them, what are you guys doing? You're going against God. I was there. I saw what he did. But they said, no, 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 maybe it's because he did it once every 1,600 years. Every day, you know, it's like, well, people put, use uh, different uh, numbers, numerology, to connect everything somehow. Because everything ends in 8, that means that uh, Mashiach is coming in number 8. Or because of this, that, so people try to connect everything all the time. It's cute, but it doesn't always work. So here we have two awful, awful generations. But the Mishnah says someone that makes a promise and doesn't keep it, he's the same like them. It's a little bit extreme. Sounds like a little machmil. Sounds like a little bit, you know, relax a little bit, you no? Know? What happened? Made a promise. I didn't keep it. Okay, but you compare me to Doam Abul. They were Rashaim. They had uh, intimate, you know, not, only, not just intermarriage. They went with animals. They did all types of awful, awful things. Even the animals were sinners. Zebra went with the lion. The lion went with the... Uh, all, things went against nature. You're comparing me to them because I made a promise I didn't keep it? Shem says yes. There's only one person in the entire Torah that Hashem actually writes, him, I hated him. Paro killed millions and millions of Jews. Millions of Jews. He used to every day take Jewish babies, kill them, and then take a bath in their blood. Why? Because his uh, magicians told him that uh, he had tzarat. said the way that you cure your tzarat is if you bathe in Jewish blood. Just the craziness of people. So he would kill millions. Like there were flies. No questions asked. Hashem doesn't say I hated Paul. Nebuchadnezzar killed so many Jews that there was a river of blood. 
Amash, a river of blood, they say, that reached the stomach of horses. Awful. Awful. Shem says, I doesn't say anything about I hated him. Doesn't say. He's a rasha. He says, no share of the world to come. They're both in Gainum forever, all that. But he doesn't say, I hated him. Who does he say, I hated? He said, Esav Saneti. In the book of Isaiah, Hashem Yitbarach says, Esav, him I hated him. Why? His brother is Yaakov Avinu. His father is Gdolador Yitzchak. Big rabbi. His grandfather is Avram Avinu. The biggest. You hate him? Everybody says, my father is a rabbi, therefore I'm a... Esav, his father, his brother, his, his uh, grandfather, everybody was the giant. Giant, giant, giant. But Hashem says, him I hated him. Why I hated him? Every night, Esav would make promises. Tomorrow I'm going to go to Beknesset, he wouldn't go. Tomorrow I'm going to do tshuva, he didn't do tshuva. Tomorrow I'm going to be a tzaddik, he wasn't a tzaddik. Every day, every night, he would make promises and break them. So this Mishnah is referring to him. This Mishnah is referring to someone that acts like him. You make promises and you break them, you're no different than Esav. What happened with Doha Mabul? What does it have to do with Doha Mabul? It says, Doha Mabul, Hashem made a promise to Noach. He says, tell the generation that if they don't do tshuva, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to destroy the world. And he kept his world. He kept his word. Even though it took over a hundred years, no one did tshuva. Hashem kept his word. That's it. Hashem showed that whatever he says, he means. He hasn't changed his mind. Same thing with the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, Hashem didn't destroy them right away. He gave them a chance. He gave them another chance and another chance and another chance. When did he decide to destroy them? When they started going against each other. When he changed their language so they couldn't keep each other's word. They would make promises and they couldn't keep it. He says, oh, once you don't have a word, you don't have the right to exist. So the same thing with Esav. Esav made a lot of promises, but he would break the promise. He says, once you don't have a word, you have no right to exist. There's no point of you. No one knows if you're going to go right, you're going to go left. There's no point. Shem says, et Esav saneti. Why? He goes against my nature. What's my nature? I say something, I keep it. I make a promise, I keep it. So now, this is very, very important to know that all the promises you made on Yom Kippur, on Rosh Hashanah, whatever you plan to do this year, you have to do your best, your absolute best to keep them. Of course, there's going to be certain things you're going to mess up. Of course, there's going to be certain things you're just not going to be able to do. Hashem is not paying you uh, a reward or punishment based on execution. He's paying you reward and punishment based on effort. He knows if you're going to succeed or not. He knows if you can do it or not. Because all of us, we go to Bikneset. You have to be in your Bikneset for a couple of days. You start feeling like an angel. You start feeling like you can fly. Maybe Moshe Rabbeinu is going to talk to you. Maybe Hashem is going to start talking to you from the sky. Everything is Hashem is going to talk to them. You're in Bikneset for so long, you're for sure He's going to talk to you. Or maybe I'm the only one who thinks Hashem is going to talk to them. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only crazy one. So, the thing is though is that you think at some point you're a tzaddik. So sometimes you make a promise, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I'm, tomorrow I'm going to Tefillat Nets. What? It's 5 o'clock in the morning? I'm there. 6 o'clock? I'm there. Make it 4. I'll go there also. Next day you sleep till 11. What happened? You said you're going to come at 4 o'clock. Shem wants you to stay asleep. Why? I want to remind you, you're human. I know you felt like an angel for a second, but the first day I want to remind you, you're human. Said that, you're going to go, you're going to go to the tomorrow, the next day. 
And you gotta, but relax. You're still human. You're going to fail sometimes. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. So he's not rewarding you or punishing you based on whether you succeed in everything you say. He's rewarding you or punishing you based on whether you keep your word on trying. Are you really trying your best? Mamash, you're trying your best. If you're trying your best, shecha. You're not trying your best. You're making a joke of the system. And that's actually one of the things that Hashem actually punished Yaakov Avinu on. Yaakov Avinu, we're going to learn about him in about a month from now. Yaakov Avinu left his uh, parents' house, ran away from Esav. And even though Hashem hated Esav and loved Yaakov, it says, I love Yaakov and I hate Esav. Still, when Yaakov was planning on going to come back to his parents, he made a swear, he made a vow that he's going to go to his parents. But on the way, he decided, you know what, maybe I should take a stop and go somewhere else first. Hashem sent him, at that moment, Hashem sent him punishment. Why? He says, if you don't go and fulfill this nedel, this vow that you made to go see your parents now, you and Esav are the same. That's how important keeping your word is to Hashem. So even Yaakov was in danger for this. So whatever promises you made to Hashem during this holiday, over Sukkot, you have to start strategizing how you can actually do it. Party, enjoy, eat, Whatever you have to do. But remember, you have to actually fulfill this promise. So now, you had a uh, couple of questions, and I'll start with the Mishnah. Go ahead. Yeah. He didn't promise to do tshuva. He just promised uh, he wanted the, the plague to stop. But also at the stage of the plagues, Hashem took away his free choice. Hashem took away his free choice for after the first three plagues. The first three plagues was his choice. He chose to do it. But the rest of the plagues, Hashem removed his free choice. So yes, in essence, it's very similar to what you're saying, but he didn't promise to do tshuva like Esav promised to do tshuva. He didn't have the father that Esav had. He didn't have the teachings that Esav had. He didn't have the opportunities that Esav had. So that's also different. Plus, he had his own uh, different punishment based on the fact that even though Hashem used him uh, to, as a tool to hit Am Yisrael, just like he used everyone else that ever hit Am Yisrael, they're all tools of Hashem. That's just a reality. As painful as it is, the reality is, it's everyone is Hashem's tool, either for good or for bad. Whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, or it's Hitler, or it's uh, you know Paro, or it's whoever it is. Everyone is a tool for Hashem. It's not that Hashem wants bad to happen. Hashem wants good to happen. But when Ami said doesn't do certain things, and Hashem has to get them to a different direction. He has to use different tools. Sometimes he's going to use a plague. Sometimes he's going to use a drought. Sometimes he's going to use a depression. Sometimes he's going to use Holocaust. Sometimes he's going to use different things. These are all tools. So all of these people, they're all little pawns. Like when you play, uh, you know, Legos or you play uh, chess. They're all little pawns that Hashem uses. Actually, we have two proofs in the Torah a few, more than two proofs, three proofs in the Torah 
that Hashem takes away the free choice of big leaders. For example, He took away the free choice of Paro, He took away the free choice of Sichon, uh, and He took away the free choice of Nebuchadnezzar at some point. So Hashem takes away the free choice of leaders. That's why when people were worried about who's going to be the next president in America, whether Trump's going to win, or uh, Hillary's going to win, or Osama bin Laden's going to win, or Arafat's going to win, whoever's going to win, who's going to win? So it doesn't make a difference. God's going to win. Because whoever goes in, Hashem is just going to move him to whatever he wants him to do. It doesn't make a difference. It's all puppets. It's all puppets. Same thing with Israel. Same thing with every country. Hashem used them to fulfill His will. So, Paral, his big sin was before. Before the actual plagues. What was the big sin? Hashem used him as a tool, and He took it an extra step further. He was supposed to just enslave Am Yisrael. That was the, in essence, Hashem gave him the power to make Am Yisrael slaves. He fooled them into becoming slaves. Originally, He told them, listen, you guys could come and invest in this country and feel free. They did, they invested, they made a lot of money, they became rich. And he said, listen, you guys made a lot of money in this country, let's build the country now, not just your own businesses. So let's invest in the country. They invested in the country. Okay, but you guys are working 50-50 on your jobs and the country. Why don't you work for me only, and I'll pay you 10 times what you're making in your business. So everybody shut down their stores and started working for the government. Socialism. Then... He said, listen, I can't really pay you ten times. I'll pay you five times. Still better. No problem. Then he said, I can't really pay you five times. I'll pay you the same. They can't go back anymore. Stores are closed, no business, everyone's bankrupt. Then he said, listen, you know what? I can't even pay you the same. I'll pay you half. What are you going to do? You have no money anymore to restart a business. Why? Because you already you were spending money like you have the high life. You thought you're going to make ten times more. And then eventually he says, I don't even have money to pay you. What are they going to do? I have food to give you. Okay, so we'll work for food. And that's how everybody became slaves. So that was the strategy of Paul. Rabbi Faim, God bless him, one of the many books that he's working on is actually showing how Paul and Hitler used very similar strategies. Very, very similar, almost identical strategies. Everything that happened there, happened there. In different ways, according to the times, but in essence, the same. So, another way we see Yad Hashem. Another way we see Yad Hashem, that Hashem is doing everything. So, now, you have Am Yisrael became slaves. That was, in essence, the power that Hashem gave Paro. But He didn't tell Paro, go kill them. He didn't tell Paul go kill them. Paul did that on his own. That's what he got the punishment for. But even that, punishment was limited. Why? Because at some point Hashem took away his free choice and therefore Hashem let him live. And that's why in the, uh, in, uh, during the Chagim, you guys read about Yonah. Right? The prophet Yonah had to come and become the prophet and save Nineveh. Nineveh was all Goim. That's why he ran away. He didn't want to save the Goim. You want to save Jews. Hashem says, no, go save the Goim in Ninveh. And it says that Yonah came to Ninveh and he told him, listen, after the whole story, he went to the whale, Hashem took him out, all that stuff. He went to Ninveh and he told him, listen, Hashem is very upset. You have to do tshuva. And actually he says, the nation knew Hashem. They knew Hashem. They believed they did tshuva. What do you mean they knew Hashem? How did they knew Hashem? 
But they went to Mount Sinai. They're all going. How do they know Hashem? Anybody know? How? How? But they're Nineveh. They're not Mitzrayim. The way they knew is because Paro was also Paro of Nineveh. Paro lived and he became the king of Nineveh. Paro lived. Paro from Mitzrayim lived and he became the king of Nineveh. So he knew that Hashem is serious. That's why he did Shuvah right away. That's why there was no, oh, maybe negotiating. Give us another week. Give us another month. Let me finish this deal. One more deal, God. One more deal. Let me finish this one deal. He knew Hashem is not joking. So he did Shuvah right away. So this is one of the things that is very important for all of us to know is that Hashem is not joking. It's not joking. You don't have to wait for Ninveh. You have the Torah. So, in uh, Sukkot, it's an opportunity for us to celebrate. It's also a time for you to read a lot of Musar. One of the most important books to read during Sukkot is the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet. Kohelet is the book that you read during Sukkot. Uh, and Kohelet is very, very, very deep Musar. To such an extent that Chazal, in the beginning, before they understood that Shlomo Melech wrote it with Ruach HaKodesh, they said, you shouldn't, you shouldn't publish this. It's depressing. It's depressing. They said, it's depressing. First line, the first couple of lines, it says, everything is a waste of time. Everything, where are you going to go? You're going to go try and make money? For what? What are you going to go try and make money for? What are you going to do with the money? So you take more material? So what? You live to die. What's the point of life then? He says, if everyone lives just to die, why, why are you even alive? He says, and I have all the material. I went, I, I researched this. Nothing new under the sun. Every generation comes, generation goes. Meaning that it doesn't matter what generation comes, what they think they add to the world. Every generation thinks they're the greatest generation that ever lived. There's no generation that said, no, you know what, this generation is bad. Every generation thinks they're the greatest. So they come, they think they add to the world. But in reality, all the new creations that solved previous problems also have problems of their own that the next generation has to fix. So we fixed one, brought it to zero, but now we're negative one again. So in essence, we're always back to the same place. We fixed old problems and created new ones. So everyone gives a lot of credit to all these inventions, whether it be the, uh, the new cars or the internet, all these different things. In reality, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. There's the new pro- it's, it's the same problem, just innovative. It's innovated again. So this is how Kohelet starts. Mamas depressing. I just got two commentaries on Kohelet today in the book, Baruch Hashem Siat Bishmai, right before the holiday. And uh, I read the first chapter with the commentary on both of them. And it's much depressing. If you don't know what happens at the rest of the book, it's much depressing. But the good news is it has a lot to do with this Mishnah. Because Mishnah in Avot, if someone really truly understands it, at the very least they'll become a Talmit Chacham. A happy Talmit Chacham. At best they become Gdolado. Someone doesn't understand it, Shemachem could have the other, the opposite effect of how this Mishnah works. So Rabbi Yonatan Omer, Kolam Ekayem Torah Mi'oni, 
סופו לקיימה מעושר. וכל המבטל את התורה מעושר, סופו לבטלה מעוני. רבי יונתן says, whoever fulfills the Torah despite poverty will ultimately fulfill it in wealth. And whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth will ultimately neglect it in poverty. So first part most people know and most people like. Most people know the story of uh, many of the tzaddikim as recent as even Rav Ovadia, Zecher Tzaddik Vibacha, when uh, he was supposed to get married the sisters of Margalit, his wife, uh, made fun of her. She said, where are you going to marry this guy? What are you going to eat? Books? doesn't make any money. In those days, there was no uh, giving a stipend to the, uh, the uh, Avrechim. Nothing. They were much poor, poor. Nothing. Nothing to eat. Like poor today means that you don't have snacks in your house. Poor back then means that you didn't eat for two, three days. So the Avrechim were especially poor. Now, and there's no hope of making money because they're learning all day. So the sisters of his wife, his future wife, tell him, why are you marrying this guy? What are you going to eat? Books? What are you going to eat? Eventually, Baruch Hashem, he won an award for writing one of the books and that was, he went mala mala. But it was mamash, people was frowned upon to marry an Avrech because they were so poor. But he actually, he's one of the few that uh, we saw Mamash live this Mishnah. At some point, they write in his bio, anyone that hasn't read his bio should Mamash read it. It's just amazing. Amazing bio on Avavadya. There's a few of them, but they're all amazing. It says that in the beginning, he would have people would come to his house to have meetings. He was already known as one of the giants of the generation as a very young guy. And they would come to the house and they would have to have meetings. The problem is that the house only had one room. Like there's one room. The whole house is one room. There's no like bedroom, bathroom, playroom, guest room, this room, that room, sometimes room, the room that you don't use but just tell people you have a room. No, there's one room. The whole house is a room. You go into a place, it's a room. But you have to have a meeting. You have kids. You have a wife. So what do they do? The, the wife and the kids would go under the table. The wife and the kids would sit under the table and he would have a meeting. To us, this sounds like a different world. It's far, far, far away from us. Us, if it's not quiet and maybe the right temperature and the right attendance and everyone looks, at, we're not even showing up to the wedding. Not showing up to the meeting, not doing anything. Here we're having, the Gdolador is having meetings in one room with the kids and the wife and the baby and everything under the table. And he's having a meeting like nothing happens. Everything's fine. That's the stories of Ravavadya. All the time. And many of the tzaddikim went through this. And Ravavadya eventually, to obviously to the rest of his life, became very, very successful. Baruch Hashem, the Gdolador, the head rabbi of Israel, published many, many books and uh, put Sephardic Jews on the map. Before Ravavadya, Sephardic Jews were unfortunately very, very, in a very confused state, very far away in many cases from Hashem, very far away from each other. Baruch Hashem today, Sephardic Judaism stands where it is 
predominantly because of the Lavadia. And today in Israel, it's probably about 50-50, or even maybe even a little more Sephardic Jews than, than Ashkenazi. Not that one is better than the other, but when modern Israel started, I read somewhere there was only 300 Sephardic Jews. 300 Sephardic Jews. 300 Sephardic Jews is a tiny little neighborhood. It's a building. But today, Baruch Hashem, it's millions. So, Rav Avadia lived poverty that we can't even imagine in a nightmare. And many, many tzaddikim lived similar nightmares. But to them, this was not only acceptable, this was in many cases welcomed. Because some of them actually even wanted this. They prayed for this. So, for example, I remember I, I read uh, someplace that one of the tzaddikim, I think it was Ben Ishchai, not Ben Ishchai, um, uh, one of the tzaddikim in previous generations, I forget the names, they always confuse the names, but the, uh, his wife bought a lotto ticket. And as soon as he found out, he started crying and he told her, listen, you have to promise me, if you win, it has nothing to do with me. So one of his students says, Lamdeni, you know, teach me, Kvodarav, what do you mean? Wouldn't you want to be a millionaire? Powerball, $10 million, $100 million, whatever it is in those days. Oh, thank you. Why wouldn't you want to win the lotto? He goes, do you know what kind of responsibility it is to be rich? If you're rich, that means that anyone that's connected to you, in any way, neighbor, friend, cousin, anyone that you know exists, he's connected to you in some way, if he is suffering because of money and you have extra, you get punished. Why? Because to be rich is an actual job. It's not something Hashem says, oh, go be rich and joy. Go to, go to Tahiti every week. You have to do something with this money. You can't continue just celebrating this money, do, go on vacations, buy extra cars, buy uh, $15,000 carpets, and then there's people that can't even have Shabbat Chala. It's unacceptable. So the Chacham knew, and he says, listen, I don't want, to, I don't want that responsibility. I don't know if I'll be able to do it. I don't know if I'll be able to much. I have to do research and find out who doesn't have. You know what kind of uh, time it takes. So the uh, Rabbi Yonatan says, whoever fulfills the Torah, Mi'oni, will eventually fulfill it in wealth. But what does it mean to fulfill the Torah? Why does it say whoever follows the Torah? Whoever just does mitzvot? Well, follows Torah. It's a good shape. He's eventually, if, he's, if he follows the Torah and keeps mitzvot when he's poor, eventually he's going to be rich. doesn't say that. Because it fulfills the Torah, meaning lives a life of Torah. What's Torah? Torah is emit. That's the chotemet of Hashem. That's the actual signature of Hashem is emit. The Torah is emit. So what does it mean, emit? So there's a tzaddik that I recently uh, learned with Rabbi Ephraim about. It was one of the talmidim of the Chatam Sofer. And his name was Rabbi Hillel Mikalmaya. Rabbi Hillel Mikalmaya was known as a rebuker. You know, in those days in the 1800s, the Rav Wasserman, Zechat Tzadik Livracha, writes in his, uh, in his book about the Mashiach, he says in today's age, this is right, after the, right before the Holocaust, he actually says in today's day, people are against Musal. They're against people that rebuke you. But everyone knows 
that in just the previous generation to us, he says, in just the previous generation to us, every community had someone that would rebuke them. And there were special people that would travel from community to community to rebuke people. That was their job. Why? To get Amisad to do tshuva. All of a sudden, he says, people are pretending like they don't, Musar is not good. This is already over 100 years ago. So, Rabbi Hillel was one of them. Was one of these people. But he wasn't like a regular guy, like he's just giving a little Musar and you do tshuva. He got to such a point, first of all, he was one of the Gedoledo. He was a huge, giant Chacham. But on top of it, he got to some, such a uh, point where the minute he would come into town, anyone that heard he's in town would publicize that he's in town, Rabbi Hillel is in town, everyone would already start doing tshuva from fear. They said, if he's here, that means we all have to do something. Everybody start doing tshuva. But it was a very tough life. It's very tough to constantly tell people you're wrong. People don't like to hear that they're wrong. So Rabbi Hillel, because he was such a big chacham, he also had an opportunity to write many books. So he wrote a book with what, over 100, uh, over 1,000 answers to Allah. To write one answer to Allah, just one answer. It could take you weeks, months, years. Just one answer. He wrote 1,000 answers. Now in those days, when you wrote a book, it's not like today, you write it on a little typewriter or on a computer, have somebody else even write it for you, press print and you have a book arrive in your house a couple of days later. In those days, it's all handwriting. And even if it's printing press, it's kapat abonot until you get there. So he wrote a thousand answers. As soon as he finished it, house went on fire, book went. Book is gone. And Rabbi Hillel thanked Hashem. He says, thank you Hashem for burning this book because now I know that my only purpose in life is to go do Kiruv. To go help people do Tshuva by telling them Musar and teaching them about Yirat Shemaim. You don't want me to write Alachot. You don't want me to write answers. That's not my point in life. Yeah, he knows the information. He's Chacham, Tzadik. No questions. That's not my point in life. So today... We learned a chidush in the Zohar that uh, was much a scary chidush. It says, what's bigger? If you ask a normal person, what's bigger? Doing kiruv, helping people do tshuva, or akedat itzchak, what Avraham Avinu did. Every normal person would say, akedat itzchak. Avraham Avinu, waited for his son a hundred years, finally got a son, Hashem says, kill him. Slaughter him. Make him korban. Avraham Avinu, tzaddik, doesn't ask any questions, doesn't complain about the weather. What does he do? Immediately, wakes up first thing in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, before nets. Before nets, I'm going to slaughter my son. No questions asked. Until this day, we're benefiting from that. Till this day, every time we say Chatan or Avin or Pashan, all the things we did, do it for Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov. Why Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov? Because Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov, look what they did. But the Zohar Kadosh says, I believe it's in Parashat Truma. It says that at the end of times, the situation is going to get so bad that 
we're going to make so many sins that in Shemaim, the Shekhinah is going to come to Hashem and as they say, that's it. They ran out of Zchut Avot. They ran out. No more. No more Zchut Avot. Meaning, Akedat Yitzchak, you used it up. Finished. Finished. Whatever you did, finished. There's so many sins. Okay, used it. Bet HaMikdash, Rishon, Sheni, Halak, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. Fine. Saved you once, twice, three times. Every day today is a miracle. At the end of days, he says there's going to be so many, what, these gay parades, this, uh, you know, reform, conservative, missionary, this, all this stuff that's happening in the world. says the Shekhinah is going to say, that's it, they finished. Too many sins. No more schutavot. Meaning, what does it mean, no more schutavot? Hashem says, he has, to, he has to destroy the world. But what does Hashem respond? As all says, yes, you're right, they ran out of schutavot, but there is one schut. That's eternal, just like the stars. I created the stars, they're never going to disappear. There's one thing like the stars. What is it? It's the people that do kiruv. For them, their schut is forever. When I heard this with Sonny, both of us were in shock. I said, oh, I started, you know, patting myself on the back. I'm like, yeah, we're in kiruv. You just got to survive. As soon as you pat yourself on the back, you get a tikkun. Back starts hurting or something. So, so anyway, the uh, Chazal says that doing kiyuv is a big thing. Baruch Hashem. But now you have Avraham Avinu did some big things. Tzadik, Navon, everything's great. Right out of Shuyot. Yaakov, his grandson, asked Hashem, said this in Hashem, I understand this test. I understand there's all types of things. I'm not complaining to you. I just don't want one test. Don't make me poor. Don't make me poor. I can't stand that test. I can't do it. Even though the bigger test is being rich. Poor, I can't survive. Just give me enough to eat. I don't want to starve to death. Give me enough to eat. Give me clothes to wear. So we see that even the Avot, there are certain, even they knew where their limit is now they knew where they would break where their emet would break where they were not able to tolerate anymore so to be a mekayema Torah to fulfill the Torah means that you not only need to fulfill the Torah but you also need to know where you stand like where is your line how far can you go beyond that line can you get better this year? Can you get better this year? Can you do more? Can you do more? Can you do more? And the life of a rebuker, the life of a person that gives Musar to people is the ultimate level. The reason why Kiruv gets such a uh, high level is because it's, as much as I love Kiruv and as passionate as I am about it, it's a nightmare in reality. It's on a daily basis. Everyone thinks, oh, it's great. You give lectures. It sounds like fun. Said, yes, if I talked about Shlom Bayit, it would be fun. If I talked about how to raise kids, it would be fun. But since you're telling people, listen, your whole life is wrong, it's not so much fun because people don't like to hear it, but they still do do tshuva. So, Baruch Hashem, you have fantastic stories like I got Motzei Chag, some woman that's been watching the Shurim uh, for a year, sends me a letter. She says, listen, I want you to know, I've been looking for my way back to Judaism for many years. 
And for the first time, I, I watched your shiurs a year ago. I started continued following. I knew it was the right place. And for the first time in 36 years, I kept Yom Kippur. So for me, this was Akedat Yitzchak. This was, this is as great as it could be. The beauty is that you hear this every day. Every day there's somebody like this. Every day, I kept Shabbat for the first time. I kept uh, Yom Kippur. I, Baruch Hashem, I didn't have an abortion. I had a kid. Baruch Hashem, several people that, Baruch Hashem, we helped them avoid having an abortion. Several people got married. One student is getting married to another student. Baruch Hashem, there's many, many blessings. That's the fun part. Getting there is tough. The lecture is the fun part. What happens after and before the lecture, that's the tough part. That's the part no one wants to do. People think, oh, it's all glamour, but you don't see all the videos made against me and the people that write against me and all that stuff. You, they embarrass you in public on a regular basis. You think it's fun. They think you become like a dartboard. Somebody's bored, what do they do? They throw darts at you. Somebody was a very uh, happy student, liked me a lot. Oh, Kvodarav, Kvodarav, all these different kinuim, uh, all these descriptions that I care less about. But people like to give respect, Kvodarav, 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 Yaron, whatever you want to call, call it, doesn't really make a difference. Just don't be an enemy. Just don't be an enemy. I don't care, what, don't call me Bechlal. Just don't be an enemy. Baksha, please. So Kvodarav, 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 okay, Kvodarav, Pseda. You have questions, I answer, I don't know, I go find, no problem. First time, I don't know, I know the guy for two years, two years maybe. First time ever, I rebuked the guy once. I told him, listen, on this specific thing, you're wrong. You're wrong, you're 100% wrong. There's no, there's no two ways, there's no like, maybe you're right. You're 100% wrong. But wrong to such a point that it's damaging. It's not like I could not say anything. If you're wrong, like you, I don't know, you, uh, you, I don't know, you did something, it just affects you. Most of the time, I'm not even going to say anything to you, unless I know that you're going to listen for sure. But if what you're doing is damaging other people, then you're uh, you're you're walking chilul Hashem. You're a problem. So I have to say something. So this guy, kvodarav, 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 two years. I tell him first time, my friend, you're wrong. You're wrong, whatever, it doesn't really make a difference what it was. You're wrong. All of a sudden, ah, but you don't really know me anyway. Well, I just watch your shurim once in a while. You don't really know too much about me. So, thank you, but I don't, I don't agree. Thanks. What happened to Kvod Arav? What happened to... What happened? What happened to all this... It's all It's all nonsense. All this Kvod Arav is nonsense. Why? Because nobody wants to hear when they're wrong. Nobody. Only if you're Ishemet. If you're Ishemet, you have to. That's why Shlomo Melech says someone who doesn't like to hear the truth, he's like a dead person. Why is he like a dead person? Why? Why Met? Why? Because he's never going to do tshuva. He's never going to do tshuva. He doesn't hear, like to hear that he's wrong. Hearing that you're wrong is, is terrible. It's painful. But it's necessary. So... Rabbi Yilel Kalmaya would go from town to town and tell people that they're wrong, but to the point where they hated him. They knew that he was right, and they knew they had to change, but they hated him, and a few people that didn't want to change and didn't want to hear him, what would they try to do? They didn't write stuff about him on the internet. What did they do? They put poison in his food. 
So one day he invites his brother-in-law to Shabbat. Shabbat. So the guy comes a little early. So they give him some kavod. This is the brother-in-law. He's like, I have some food. Have some food even before Shabbat. You know, have some food, have something. You traveled far away. The guy has a sip of the soup, dies on the spot. Dies on the spot. So, Rabbi Ilei Mikalmaya says, what do you think, this is going to stop me? This just shows that you're all Rishayim. Like I said, and that's what you have to do tshuva. And Hashem also shows that Hashem protects me. Because once you do Kiruv, you have a special deal with Hashem. Special deal. But also he says, it proves that I'm right. Proves that you're all Rishayim. You have to do tshuva. Ta, and he gives them on the head, oh, Hashem Rechem. Hashem Rechem. So now, so to be a Mekayema Torah, you have to be Ishemet to thick and thin. So when you go and you're Ishemet, that means that you have to go against the rich people. Because the rich people sometimes are the biggest liars in the world. So he went against the rich people. So what does that mean when you go against the rich people? No staka. No staka, no fund, no nothing. You get to a point where mamash, poverty. Didn't eat for days. Kids couldn't eat. Kids have holes in their clothes. Didn't make a difference for him. He's still celebrating the truth like nothing happened. And eventually what ended up happening is the rest of this Mishnah of how he eventually got to Gdullah. But today, I saw something on the, you know, there's always Siat Lishmaya, Baruch Hashem, with Yishurim. You guys have a lot of Shuyot and Shamaim. Hashem gives me different things. Now, I haven't seen a Forbes magazine in many years. Since I left Wall Street. But I, I remember the first time I saw a Forbes magazine it was maybe 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I started uh, reading Forbes. And they always had this, uh, I don't know, competition or whatever you want to call it, this list of the greatest guys, the most rich people, Forbes list, and uh, whatever. The, uh, the previous tenant, I guess, had this magazine come to the house and it came to my mail. So I saw it today and they have Warren Buffett. That everybody honors like he's the greatest guy in the world. And there's two things that it made me think about. This Forbes magazine, 20 years. Two things. The first thing is, is that people think that people like Warren Buffett, like humble, nice people, tzaddikim, look how much stakai they give. First and foremost, you should all know, most of that stuff is for show. Most of the stuff that the billionaires give, it's for show. It's not because they care about some cause in uh, the middle of Africa. If they cared, the money would actually be given. It wouldn't be staying in some fund. And the Bill Gates and Melinda Fund is $30 billion for 20 years already. Just give the money away. Give it to me, I'll spend it in a week. Africa, give them food. The other part, give them food. In a week, you spend all the money. Why is it still there? If you really care, just spend the money. Why is it? You have a, this money, what, what, what do they do with this money? They invest it in hedge funds, in real estate, and all types of things. But what happened? Why do they do it? Because you get tax write-offs, and you get fame, and you look good in the news, and you look like a tzaddik. So that's one. Second thing is, when you get old, you get old, by nature, people think you're a tzaddik, just because you have white hair. So Warren Buffett, a lot of he's had white hair for a million years already. The guy's like a thousand years old. And uh, he, everybody thinks, oh, he's like the humblest guy. But in reality, the whole Berkshire Hathaway story 
is based on somebody who doesn't know how to control their temper. What happened? He wanted to buy a textile company. Textile company. And the owner of the textile company reneged on a deal. He didn't want to do it anymore. Warren Buffett didn't accept it. He was a millionaire. Didn't accept somebody saying no to him. So what did he do? He went to the market and bought all the stocks. The fourth the guy to give him the, the thing. This is purely gava. This is purely pride. He even says himself, it was the worst mistake I ever made. It was a bad deal, but I only bought it because I, I didn't want to accept a no for an answer. So it's gava. This shows that how human flaws even exist with the rich people. But what's the third thing and most important thing that I saw in this magazine? They show you a list of all these rich people, whether it's uh, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or John Malone or uh, whatever. There's all these rich people. Oprah. Um, the guy from, uh, what's his name? Repeat that again. I didn't hear you. It's the ones that stay out of the magazine and stay private that are the ones that get the real charity. The real charity is anonymous. It's possible. Sure. Listen, there's definitely charities. There's definitely money going to charities of our right cause. Not everything is bad. But the uh, these guys that are uh, very popular, sometimes they're not popular for the right reasons. But here you have all these faces. You have oh, Lakshmi Mittal and uh, Julian Robertson and uh, all these people. Jeff Bezos and Jack Welch and all these people. And the one thing I noticed that changed in the last 20 years, only one thing changed. For the most part. They all got old. It's the same people. For the most part, it's the same people. There's a few new guys, the internet guys, like Jack Dorsey and a couple of Google guys. There's a few new guys. But for the most part, it's the same people. They just got old. And that made me very sad. Made me very, very sad. Because I thought to myself, like these people, for 20 years they've been seeing the magazine. Every month or every couple of months they see this magazine, they see themselves in the magazine... They celebrate that they have a little bit more money than last year. Last year they had one billion. This year they have one point five billion. And the year after that he has two billion. Then he went down to one again. Then he went up to five, and so on and so forth. And 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 the, and the rat race continues. And twenty years later, the only thing that changed not their lifestyles didn't change. They were already rich enough to buy a country twenty years ago. Nothing changed. All that changed in the magazines. They all got old. Now, and the thing is, though, is that most of them have a lot more money than they had 20 years ago. But here's the problem. They'll have to die. And then there's no point. What are you going to do with all the money? You can't take it with you. So for 20 years, you've been appearing at this magazine. Everyone's celebrating. Oh, look, Jack Welch is higher than this one. Or Warren Buffett is number one this year. And Bill Gates is number one last year. And then they go back and forth, back and forth. And everyone else talks about it. I'm sure they themselves probably don't talk much about it. But the reality of it is that this, is, this whole media nonsense is to make us chase the, the, what they already have. But what we're missing is the truth, which is that it's mamash pointless. It's exactly like Shlomo Melech said. 
There's no point. They're all going to die at some point. And if, that's, if money is the only thing they have, they're the most miserable people in the world. Because all they're going to do is they're going to be the ones that leave the most behind they can't do anything with. What would you do? What did you do with this money? Like, I don't know what each one of these people do with their personal money, but I doubt, they, I doubt that most of them save the world. I doubt that most of them care about the world. I doubt that there's even one soul that was saved because of it. Maybe they saved a few bodies, giving some money to some homeless people, giving some money to some people that didn't have any money, whatever. Big deal. Hashem didn't need them for that. But what are you going to bring to Allah Abba? The buildings that you have your name on, can't take with you. And the people that are seeing your name on the building, eventually they're going to forget who you are and they're going to replace it. You know, buildings used to have other people's names on them. Used to have Rockefeller and other people that were rich of the previous generation. And eventually, the new generation said, listen, Rockefeller's not here anymore. Take the building that he invested a zillion dollars into and put somebody else's uh, name on it. Who? Put GE on it. It's a big company. So they put GE on it. And then another guy bought another building and he took another name of some other guy that died in a previous generation. And they put another guy's name, and another guy's name, and another guy's name, and pretty much everything that these people worked on in the last 20 years at least that I've been following, it's all going to go away. It all becomes pointless. You can't take anything with you. They all have to go at some point, this year, next year, whenever. At some point, they have to go meet their maker. When we meet our maker, we're all naked. Money, useless. Cars, useless. Stock account, useless. Track record in the stock market, useless. Real estate portfolio, useless. Everything is useless. Except if you did mitzvot. That's it. It's the only thing you can take with you. Okay, I gave you a billion dollars. What would you do with it? I bought a house. Okay, then what? I bought another house. Okay, then what? I bought a building. Okay, then what? I bought this, I bought this. Okay, all that, great. I, you bought all those things. That's over there. What would you bring with you? Other than a wrinkly face, what'd you bring with you? What'd you bring? Same picture. Twenty years just got old. What happened? What'd you What'd you bring? What do you have? Tachlis. What do you have? You are now meeting your maker. What did you bring? Did you search who God is that gave you this money? Did you figure out who what your purpose in life is? I mean, it definitely can't be making money. They did. Everyone is responsible for themselves. Everyone has an opportunity to ask, what's the point in life? Even more so when you have money. That's one of the things that Shlomo Melech says in Ecclesiastes. He says, the reason why I'm writing this book is because I have all the money in the world, power and everything else, so therefore I investigated this issue. He said, I had time because of the, le- because of the luxury of money. I didn't have to go work. Because of the luxury of power, I didn't have to worry about anybody killing me. Because of the luxuries that I have, I spent a lot of time and a lot of resources finding what's the point of all of it. What's the point in life? Meaning that if you, the fact that you have zillions of dollars actually puts a bigger responsibility on you to find the purpose in life. Because then you don't have the common man's struggle of survival anymore. You're still a human being, still given a brain, still given a neshama, 
You're still given. Everyone knows there has to be a purpose. The point is, what are you going to do when you find out that purpose? Now, the problem is, the reason why most people can hear what the purpose is, the purpose can smack them in the face, and they still want to go in a different direction, is because the purpose obligates you. It obligates you to change. If I tell you that, listen, you're right now, you did this ABC, and you were successful at it, but that success is going to end at some point, it's going to end at some point, and then the fact that you didn't fulfill your purpose, you're going to have to start suffering because of that. Or, you could stop enjoying this world as much as you do, and take a break for a little while, and start focusing on other things. Instead of working on your body all the time, work on your neshama, work on your soul, develop your soul, which you don't even have a concept of how enjoyable that is yet. Because when you tell somebody, listen, learning to lie is enjoyable, to somebody that doesn't learn to lie, it sounds insane. What could be possibly so enjoyable about reading a book? I read many books. Some are good, some are bad. No one says it's enjoyable to read Harry Potter. It's a good book or a bad book. Nobody says it's enjoyable to read, I don't know, any one of these famous secular books. It's either a good book or it's a bad book. It's not enjoyable. Torah actually gives you a physical pleasure. It's not just a, it's not just a something like you like the idea. Once you get into Torah, it can actually give you a physical high. That's how it can get to. If you haven't gotten it, that means you haven't studied hard enough yet. You'll get there, Bezat Hashem. So, everyone is given this choice. But that choice obligates you. That choice means that you have to make decisions based on this ultimate purpose. You're now part of a system instead of being independent. You're now not part of a individual 100 or 1,000 or 500 rich people. You're part of a universal system. And you have to contribute to the whole system and not just yourself. Everything changes. So this is one of the things that people don't want to hear about, don't want to do. And the reason why is because people are selfish, naturally. They're selfish. So Rabbi Yonatan says that if you realize that the ultimate purpose has to be achieved whether you're rich or poor, if you're given the test of poverty, if you're given the test of poverty, eventually, and you still pass the test, you still stay on course, you still get to a point of not only learning Torah, but living that Torah, living a life full of truth, standing for the truth, not your own version of the truth, but the, the Creator's version of the truth, then you will not only benefit from Oshel, from wealth, material and spiritual wealth in this world, but you'll have eternity. You'll have wealth eternally. On the other hand, if you waste your time, you neglect the Torah because instead of going to learn Shio Torah, you want to go to a business meeting. Instead of going to Shio Torah, you want to watch the game. You just, you know, you don't feel like doing it. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. Maybe after I get married. Maybe after I make money. Maybe this, maybe this. He's always procrastinating it. He says, eventually, Hashem gives you wealth. Hashem gives you a wealth of opportunities. Hashem gives you a wealth of, as far as money, as far as wisdom. Gives you a wealth of a lot of different things. Eventually, that wealth 
is going to run out. And the fact that you didn't use it means that Hashem has to take it back. Now, in China, one of the... Uh, one of the things that every country that wants people to invest into it does is they give free land. They give free land. In every country this happened. So in China, if you want to be a tycoon, you go make relationships with the mayors. They have, I think, three million mayors in China. I met three million mayors. It's a big population. What are these mayors supposed to do? You're supposed to negotiate with them and uh, see if they can give you land so you can build on. Um, so why are they going to give you land? They're going to give you land based on the fact that they are going to, uh, you're going to de- develop on the land. Yeah. You got it? They're going to give you the land based on the deal that they give you free land or for cheap. And within a certain amount of years, you're going to develop on this land. You're going to build something. You're going to build a building, an apartment complex, a factory, something. Now, it's not one, two, three process. It takes time. Sometimes it takes bribes. You have to bribe a few people. You have to negotiate. You have to fill out forms. You have to do a few deals. It's a kapat avonot. You have to, until you get the deal. And it's not just in China. It's everywhere. And America is the same thing. Eventually, finally, you get the deal. You get the land. Now, who is the stupidest guy in the world? The stupidest guy in the world is the guy that gets the land. And then five years, ten years pass, and he doesn't do anything with it. Why? Because they see, listen, we gave you the land. Based on a deal, you're going to develop it. Within five years, within ten years. Ten years have passed, it's still a parking lot. Nothing happened. What happens? We have to take it back. We're going to give it to somebody who's going to develop it. Same thing with Hashem. Hashem gives you a wealth of opportunities. He gives you money. He gives you insight. He gives you different types of heavenly help to learn, to understand, to do. Different opportunities of mitzvot. Different special people in your life. He says, go. Do it. Take advantage of it. This can make your ultimate purpose something that will influence eternally. This could, this could make you a Moshe Rabbeinu. Every single person could be Moshe Rabbeinu. Every single person could be Avraham Avinu. His own version. But every single person could be special. Everyone. Hashem gives you the opportunities. Hashem gave Moshe Rabbeinu prophecy, but He also gave Bilam prophecy. Both had prophecy. Same time. As a matter of fact, Bil'am was born before Moshe. So he had a head start. Bil'am had a power that even Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have. Hashem says, here, you have prophecy. You want to talk to me? Talk. You want to know the future? Go. You want different things? You want? Here. You're a prophet. I'll violate it to be a prophet. I'll violate it to be... Next to a prophet, Bil'am 
which the Gemara says, Bil'am Arasha, Bil'am the wicked. Calling a prophet a wicked? Yeah, he was wicked. Bil'am had even more powers than Moshe Rabbeinu in some regard. But Bil'am turns to be, Bil'am Arasha has, has no share of the world to come, and Moshe Rabbeinu is the greatest person that ever lived. Greatest level of Kedusha, greatest level of prophecy, greatest level of everything. The greatest. But they both got prophecy. They both got the opportunity. One didn't use it, one used it. Hashem gives you opportunities. What is it like? It's like someone doesn't have much money, goes to a rich guy and he says, listen, can I borrow a million dollars? A million dollars. I remember the story I heard from Rabbi Nisimi again. Allah shalom. He says, a million dollars... Just the interest on a million dollars is a hundred thousand dollars. Just the interest is a hundred thousand. The guy doesn't have any money. He didn't have money before the million, and he didn't have money for the hundred thousand. But he tells the guy, "Listen, can I borrow a million dollars?" The guy says, "Yeah, no problem." But how are you going to return it to me? He goes, right, "Really? I don't have any. I don't, I don't have the ability to return it to you." He goes, "Okay, fine. You know what? I like you. You're a nice guy. Pay me ten dollars a month." $10 a month, you can live 2,000 years. You're still not going to pay a million dollars back. $10 a month, you're never going to pay back. But he says, give me $10 a month, but there's only one condition. All the checks, write them ahead of time. Post-date them. So I don't have to, you know, send, spend 50 cents on a stamp to send you a bill. Just give me the checks ahead of time. No problem. He gives them a million dollars. Here's 12 checks for $10 a month. First month comes, $10 check bounces. What happened? Oh, maybe you forgot to deposit it. Okay, the check bounced. No big deal. It cost $35 for a bounce check, but no problem. Fine. Second month, $10 check deposited, bounces. Bounces like a basketball. Is this not a wicked person? Is this not a rasha? You gave him a million dollars. You told him, give me $10 a month for 2,000 years. And even $10 a month, he's not paying you. The problem is, it's not that different from us. That's the problem. The problem is, it's not that different from us. And like Ralph is saying in the back, some of us are worse. Okay, so... It's sad. We're far away from the truth. Can people come to socialize? Don't expect any different. Don't expect any different. People don't like the truth. So here's the point. The point is, is somebody lent a million dollars. He gave. He said, just give me ten dollars a month, twelve months. The check bounces. That's a rasha. That's a kfui tova. That's someone that's ungrateful. The problem is, Hashem gives us opportunities. Hashem gives us opportunities. He gives us 
money every day. He gives us vision every day. He gives us air in our lungs every day. He gives us the ability to walk, to eat, to go to the bathroom, to think, to do a lot of things. Not only does the check bounce, sometimes we don't even give him the check. Sometimes we use the million dollars to go to war with him. Sometimes you have people that are on the Forbes 500 list that are the biggest anti-Torah people in the world. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Some of them, some of the top, some of the top richest people in the world are the biggest anti-Torah people on the planet. So Hashem gave them billions and they're using it to fight Him. This is no different than the Tower of Babel. But here Hashem says, it's no problem, eventually everybody has to pay the bill. If you'll use money as a tool, sometimes I'll give it to you, sometimes I won't give it to you. But the reality of it is that if you realize that the priority in life is living a life of Torah, eventually you'll have material and spiritual wealth. On the other hand, if I give you material wealth and you don't use it for the right reasons, eventually you'll be poor, either in this world or the next one. But either way, it's going to happen. This is what this Mishnah is all about. The problem is, like Ralph was saying, that sometimes people think they can buy their ulama with money. So they go to Beknesset during the Chagim. They don't go to Beknesset the whole year. They go to Beknesset during the Chagim. I was telling them to somebody before on uh, on Yom Kippur, the Baalei Musar say, you know, Purim, the Kippurim, it's the same thing. So the Pshat is that at the end of times when the Mashiach comes, Yom Kippur is going to turn into a holiday where we're celebrating. There's no more uh, fasting. We're celebrating. And Kippurim means like Purim. So Kippurim means like Purim. But the Baalei Musar says, no, it says like Purim because on Purim, the Jewish people dress like Goim. We dress like Haman. We dress like uh, this one. We dress like all types of things. But on Kippurim, on Yom Kippur, it's the Goim dressed like Jews. Unfortunately, the ones that don't show up to be Knesset the whole year, the ones that don't care about anything, they show up to be Knesset and they think they can buy their Olam Abba. Like, unfortunately, I saw this Chag, some guy who doesn't keep anything, comes to be Knesset and he starts running the show. No, this Aliyah, I'm going to buy that one. Okay, I'll give it to him and I'll buy this one. I'll give it to him and I'll buy this one. I'll give it to him. And he goes and he gets up and he's like acting like he's the rabbi. And he starts kissing the, 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 uh, the Sefer Torah. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, Sefer Torah probably doesn't want to be kissed by you. Just listen to what it says. Just listen to what it says. Ah, start off with having a shirt that covers the whole body. Like the guy, I don't know. Sometimes people just like they buy like half clothes. Like, I think one of the things we should all do, we should start a fund. We should start a fund. Instead of, the, like, they, you know, they all sell aliyot at the Bateknesset for Yom Kippur. I think we should do a pre-holiday fund. What's the pre-holiday fund for? To buy people the other half of the clothing they're not wearing. Because now it's a problem with both men and women. Women, for some reason, they buy a half a dress. 
half a dress. It just covers like, I don't know, just like a few holes. Other than that, it doesn't cover anything else. Mamas, they come to, they, they, oh yeah, I bought this especially for the Chag. So you should have got a discount. It's not a full dress. It's not a full dress. You should have got a discount. Why'd you pay full price? Or the guys, the guys sometimes, especially if they're heavy, I don't know, for some reason they feel like going to the Beknesset with a t-shirt and their stomach hanging out is okay. I don't know. I don't understand that. So I think maybe we should start a fund. Buy, uh, you know, buy these people some clothes. Like the other half that they're not wearing. I don't know, if you guys think it's a good idea, you should donate. Donate now. Donate now. We'll start a fund. So anyway, sometimes you see these people, they come in, they start buying mitzvot, thinking that it's going to help them. Thinking that if they buy this aliyah and that aliyah and this aliyah, it's all going to help them. The reality of it is, there's a special Mishnah. Yom Kippur is a very special day where Hashem wants to forgive us. Hashem Amash wants to forgive us. He gave us preparation. He gave us opportunities. He gave us mitzvot. He gave us tefillot. He gave us a lot of amazing things. A lot of opportunities. He gave us a million dollars. And he says, pay me $10 a day. $10 a month. $10 a year. Yeah, but you made a ton of sins. Everything can be forgiven today. Mamash, everything. There's one night. There's one condition. One. Not five. Not ten. One condition. I gave you a million dollars. I'm willing to forgive the loan. Don't even pay it back. Forget the ten dollars a month. Don't pay it back at all. You didn't pay it until now. Every check bounced. Twelve in a row bounced. You rasha. You gave me twelve checks. All twelve checks bounced. All twelve checks bounced. No problem. I'll still give you an opportunity where not only you don't have to give the 12 checks back, you don't have to give anything back. Go. One condition. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. That's it. Stop. That's the problem. We can't stop sinning. We can't. So we know that we don't want to change our life. So we figured that maybe there's like a way around. Maybe if I buy an aliyah and I show people how I have a lot of money and I'm supporting this bit knesset that I never attend, maybe that's going to be a different way. We're trying to reinvent the wheel. We're trying to reinvent Hashem's Torah. You can't. Hashem says, listen, Someone says, I'm going to make a sin. And then do tshuva. I'm going to make a sin and then do tshuva. In Shemaim, what's the punishment for such a chutzpan? They don't let, let him live long enough to do tshuva. And it continues, the Mishnah continues. And Yom Kippur doesn't help him. Why he doesn't help him? Because he, he already planned on sinning when he was doing tshuva. So it wasn't tshuva. And I'll finish it with this. In the Torah, you have a few major characters that were extraordinary because of the tshuva they did. Now, who is the first person that did tshuva in the Torah? Adam Arishon. Adam Arishon did tshuva. He separated from his wife, did tshuva. After that, who's mentioned in the tshuva? After Adam Arishon? No, before him. Ruven. Ruven was the firstborn son of Yaakov Avinu. And after his mom died, 
after, I'm sorry, after Rachel died, Yosef and uh, Benjamin's uh, mother, Ruven put his mom's bed next to Yaakov. So the Torah says he slept with Yaakov's wife. Ruven was a tzaddik. Ruven was a king. Ruven was, I mean, a prophet. Slept with his mother. Are you insane? He says what? What he did was not modest. He went into his parents' bedroom. It's not modest. It could get that little poison. That little poison of immodesty can lead to that. That's what the Torah says. It was almost as if he slept with his father's wife. Chash he didn't. So Uven did tshuva. He did tshuva. And that's why when the brothers, we're going to learn this in a couple of months, when the brothers sold Yosef, Uven wasn't there. And when Uven went back to the hole, where they, the last time he saw Yosef, Yosef was in a hole full of snakes and scorpions. But he said, leave him there and not kill him, because the brothers wanted to kill him. He says, no, no, don't kill him, just leave him there. And maybe we'll sell him, maybe this, maybe that, just don't kill him. And he left. And then when he came back, the hole is empty, and he starts screaming, what happened, what did you do with him? And they told him we sold him. So where did he go? Where did he go? No, Ruven didn't go. No, not, Yosef went to Egypt. But Ruven, where did Ruven go? Why did he leave the hole? Where did he go? He was doing tshuva. He was praying. He was doing tshuva. He was fasting while his brothers were eating. His tshuva was doing all types of... Uh, he, put, he wore a sack. From what happened with his father, his father punished him. He took away the first burn rights from him. And uh, he felt bad, obviously. And he started fasting. He started wearing sacks and uh, all types of uh, things that you do when you're mourning, like someone died. So he is the first one out of the 12 tribes that did tshuva. But if you notice in the books, it says the first tshuva is Yehuda, his brother. His brother. But Yehuda didn't do tshuva first time. Uven did. When did Yehuda do tshuva? When Tamar came and said, listen, the famous story goes, he actually impregnated her, but he didn't know that it was her. She pretended to be a prostitute because after she married his first son, his first son was a rasha. He didn't know his son was a rasha. He used to waste seed. He didn't want to make uh, Tamar, which was very, very beautiful, one of the most beautiful women that ever lived. He didn't want to make her pregnant and ruin her body. So, he would waste seed and he would ejaculate outside of her body. So Hashem says, you're Rasha. He killed him. This is actually one of the sources in the uh, shiur that we did about wasting seed. It's one of the sources of uh, how wasting seed is relevant and also a uh, commandment for Noahites, not just Jews. Because at the time of the 12 tribes, there was no Judaism yet. So, the original source is Noah, and then after that, it's the 12 tribes. But anyway, the uh, first son wasted seed, Hashem killed him. Hashem said it's disgusting, he killed him. Then they fulfilled the mitzvah of Yibum, and the brother, because they didn't have kids, the brother married Tamar. But he was also a Rasha. He also wasted seed, so Hashem killed him also. So after that, there was a third brother, but the third brother was young. So Tamar went to Yehuda, the father, and he said, okay, so 
am I going to marry the son? And Yehuda Bemet didn't really want her to marry the son because he was scared. Maybe she's uh, going to kill the third son. Maybe there's something wrong with her. Maybe not. He didn't know his sons were Rashaim. So really, he didn't intend on giving her the opportunity to marry uh, his, uh, his son. But he said, yeah, yeah, you'll marry him, but he just needs to get older. Go back to your father's house for now. Go back to your father's house for now. And then, when he's old enough, you'll get married. That's what she did. And she had a dream, she had a prophecy, that the seed of the Mashiach is going to come from Yehuda. And she wanted to be a piece of it. She wanted to, she wanted to be a, the mother of the Mashiach. So she wanted to do everything possible to be with the son. But then she found out and realized that Yehuda is not intending on giving her his son. So she did something very zealous, which is she pretended to be a prostitute, and she came on to Yehuda, the father himself. And Hashem wanted this to happen. Hashem pushed him on her, meaning... He, over, uh, he didn't even have control over himself, and he was with her. Now, she covered, in those days, a prostitute. How would you know it was a prostitute? They didn't uh, walk around with miniskirts. How do you know if it's a prostitute? They look like Arabs today. They cover their face. That's how you know if somebody was a prostitute. Everyone covered their hair with a mitpachat. Uh, Everyone covered their body. There was no such thing as immodesty. How do you know if somebody's a prostitute or not? They would cover their face. So these Muslims that think they're doing a mitzvah by covering their face, they don't realize that they actually look at prostitutes from the Torah. But anyway, magia uh, Anyway, the uh, Torah then says that she got pregnant and people, you know, eventually chose. So the people from the community says, look, Yehuda, which was a king, your daughter-in-law is a, is a prostitute. She got pregnant without having a husband. So what's the punishment? Death penalty. So Yudah says, okay. Throw her into the fire. So Tamal says to the people, before they throw me into the fire, let me say one thing to Yudah. And last chance to say something. What does she say to him? She says, do you know who these belong to? And she shows him his underwear and his chotemet, his uh, stamp, his signature stamp. Which obviously it's his. So now he realizes that he's the one that got her pregnant. But she doesn't say, you did it, you Rasha, you're the one that got me pregnant. No. Meaning she gives him a choice. If you want to say the truth and admit in front of everyone, you're the one that's the father of these kids. Good. Then I'll live. And then you'll have kids. You'll have twins in my stomach. If not, I'd rather jump into the fire than embarrass you. And from there the Gemara in Sota says, that's where we learn it's better to jump into a fire and burn and die than embarrass another Jew in public. From Tamar we learned this. So Yehuda did tshuva. What did he do? Ode. He admitted. He admitted, yes, tzadkami meni. She's right, I'm wrong. I'm the one that got her pregnant. I didn't know, but I'm the one. Which means they could have all killed him. Even though he's the king, he violated the law. But then when he admitted, there was a bat call that came from Shemaim, a heavenly voice came from Shemaim, and Hashem says, no, she didn't, she's not right, more right than you, she's more right than me. Meaning, she, she beat me. She overcame a big test. So Hashem vouched for him. So, Yehuda, the reason why Am Yisrael is called Yehudim, after Yehuda. 
but he's not the first one to do tshuva. Why aren't we called Ruvenim? That would be nice for me. Ruven, Ruven. Why are we, why are we called Yehudim? Why not Yehudim? Ruven is the first one to do tshuva. Why? Because Ruven did tshuva with fasts and with sacks and beating up his body. That's not the tshuva that Hashem wants. Yehuda did tshuva, he changes actions. He changed himself. He admitted he's wrong. And he changed. So on Yom Kippur, all of us says, all of us said, Chatanu, Avinu, Pashanu, we sinned, we sinned, we sinned, give us this, give us this, give us this, give us this. Now it's a time for us to decide. Do you want to make the fake fast that Hashem didn't accept? And that's why we're not called Ruvenim. Or you want to be like Yehuda. Here this Mishnah is telling you, if your tshuva is only based on fasts, it's not worth anything. But if your tshuva is based on changing actions, your Torah will come to life. You'll have siyat bishmaya, you'll have wealth in this world, you'll have wealth in the next world, and you won't be like one of these faces on the Forbes magazine that just gets older with no purpose in life. Any questions? Go ahead. Ken. So my question is, is it like, I mean, if, can Mashiach come tomorrow? Can Mashiach come in Pesach? Can Mashiach... Oh, no, no, I can. No, no, I can. You know what? Honestly, honestly, actually, before, Kvodo, if you could tell us, if you could tell us, can it get worse than this? Anyone, if you want to ask if it can get worse than this, you should ask him. Ask him what he saw 70 years ago. This is Gan Eden, what we live right now. Right now, what we live, this life that we're living in is like Gan Eden. Our biggest problem is the air conditioner doesn't work. Or we don't have a lot of money. Or something like that. But what they lived, what he lived 70 years ago, that's, that's Tikkun. Thank you very much, Mamash. You know, but you that Hashem says, you say it's, it's here. It's, it's you know what? I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Baruch Hashem, what happened today in the Shiul 
You guys don't even understand what just happened. This shoe wasn't supposed to happen, Bechlal. It's Monday. We don't have shoes on Monday. We don't have shoes on Monday. To get to a shoe on Tuesday and Wednesday is already, I have, the whole world has to like collapse in order for me to make it to the shoe. So to have it on a new day, it's mamash. The Satan gets up off his chair and beats me up all day just to survive to get to the shoe. If I tell you just what happens to me on a daily basis to get to a shoe, you guys would say, why do you even do it, Bechlal? But that's not the point. I understand now why this year happened. It has everything to do with what you're saying. You're saying, how much worse can it get? Right? No, no, no. So let me answer the question. Let me answer the question. You see, Hashem Barach is very kind with us. And He likes to give us support. likes to give us a push here and there. When you're doing good, He likes to give you a push. When you're doing bad, nothing happens. Well, sometimes you get punished. So, Baruch Hashem, these last several months, we've had an extraordinary amount of Seat Bishmaya. Torah, Baruch Hashem, a lot of Chidushim. The uh, organization, Bezat Hashem, growing leaps and bounds. What other organizations invested millions and millions of dollars in, we're either getting it for nothing or we're getting it for such a price that we can actually afford, which is pennies. Because we're not so big as far as financials. But whatever, we're doing what we can. We have movies that big organizations are asking us, asking me how many people I have on my staff to make these movies. There's a new movie coming out tomorrow night. Part 3 of Torah and Science and uh, Ancient Wisdom. It's the best part out of the three, by the way. The first two are amazing. Part 3 is better than both. It's amazing, much amazing. Phenomenal production. So months in the making. We have another movie that's also probably about two weeks away, one week away from being finished. And a few others. We have a TV station that's going to go live very soon. We have uh, a lot of amazing things. A few books and so on. But Tachlis is, how do you know it's working? I didn't know it's working. So once in a while, Hashem sends you a gift and He says, listen, letters come in. I started watching Yeshurim. I keep Shabbat. I started watching Yeshurim. I kept Yom Kippur. I started watching Shurim. I took off the wig. One woman, Baruch Hashem, uh, just two weeks, right before Shana, says, I bought a wig. A day later, after I bought a wig for, very, for thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars, I saw your shoe about wigs. The wig is in the garbage right now. Now this is a person that's wore wigs her whole life. It's not like it's the first wig. Whole life she's wearing wigs. She saw Shul, said, I know it's true. I know it's true. It's hard for me. It's hard for my husband. But I know it's true. Wig goes in the garbage. So you're seeing Siyat Dishma. You're seeing Ramash, this result. Every day, Baruch Hashem. But you ask the question, how much worse can it be? Sinners we have. Plenty of sinners, unfortunately. The chidush we got today from Rabbi Ephraim and the Zohar Kadosh was that at the end of times, I don't know if you were here yet, but at the end of times we're going to run, we're going to make so many sins that we're going to lose all of us chutavot. 
any merits that our, our forefathers have that we're still surviving on will run out. Run out. Meaning, we won't go from trouble to disaster. So you asked, how much worse can it get? Now I have people that watch the Shulim, all parts of the world. Tahiti, Australia, Israel, all over the US, UK, Hasidish people, Ashkenazi, Sephardic, religious, atheist. I actually even have a couple of people from Arab countries, from Budabi, from uh, from uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia. I think I have one guy. Uh, one guy in Afghanistan watches the shurim. No, no. I actually have people that are they sent. They, they even actually donated a few dollars too. It's unbelievable. Like you show, okay, watch the shurim. Okay, maybe just somebody's like looking to assassinate me. But actually donating money, <laughs> donating money, it means they actually like the shurim. So now people are from all kinds. But for the first time, today you got your answer live. You asked how much worse can it get, right? So Shem sent you a Holocaust survival. The tzaddik that just left the shiul, he's in mid-90, he's 94 years old. Apparently he's a big fan. I met his wife right before Rosh Hashanah. And she said, right when I moved to the community, she says, I can't believe I'm meeting you. We've been watching your shurim. And then she says, my husband's very upset that I met you before him because he's even a bigger fan. So you asked, how much worse can it be? So Shem sent you an answer. He sent you a Holocaust survivor. And the Holocaust is exactly... Right before the Holocaust happened, it's exactly like today. Jews were in power. Jews were rich. Jews were in control. And Jews were anti-Torah. Intermarriage became normal, acceptable. Everything that's happening right now. You ask how much worse can it be? Should have asked him. Right now it's Gan Eden. That's why I do what I do. Somebody asked me on a holiday, says he's a fan, he watched Shurin, ta-ta-ta, all the compliments that they give. I go, okay, to the point. He goes, listen, you can make go back to Wall Street, go make money. Go make $50 million. Go make $100 million. Come back, do Kiruf, maybe pay other people to do it. So I thought about this Mishnah said, let's say we listen to this guy. I go back to Wall Street and I go make money. But then this Mishnah came up. And the Mishnah says, if you fulfill the Torah despite not having any money, despite being poor, despite not having a penny, Despite not knowing how you're going to survive next month, next week, next day, eventually you'll have wealth. What kind of wealth? It could be material, it could be spiritual, it could be both. But if you neglect the Torah because you're chasing wealth, eventually you'll have poverty. So yes, I go back to Wall Street. Be like these guys. 
There's no doubt in my mind I could be on a Forbes 500 within a certain amount of time. No doubt. Skill set, I'm better than today than I was ever before. You have a clearer mind. You have, I'm healthier, Baruch Hashem. No questions asked. But then what's Am Yisrael going to do? There's one less guy that's actually helping people do tshuva. There's not that many to begin with. I'm not the only guy. There's obviously other ones. There's Rabbi Zachi, there's a few others. There's Rabbi Lonava, there's Rabbi uh, um, Zitron. There's a few. But we still have 80% of Am Yisrael doesn't even keep Shabbat. Which means that whatever we have is definitely not enough. So to lower it by one more, so how much worse can it be? Much worse. That's the, that's why we don't go back to Wall Street. That's why I don't care about money. That's why it's not some big dula. I'm not some big tzaddik, so big nothing. It's just the reality. What he lived, I dream about. That's what's possible. That's what's likely. And whoever's going to survive is the one that actually listens to this Mishnah. Everybody else, it's a disaster. So everyone has an opportunity to invest. You can invest in your building. You can invest in your next house. You can invest in the next kitchen. You can invest in the next car. You get a second car and a third car, and maybe get your 16-year-old kid car, and get a bigger iPhone and a bigger iPad and a bigger this and a bigger that, and maybe some more magazine subscriptions so you can look at other people's money just in case they have more than you. But you can't take anything of it. Can't take any of it with you. Nothing happens. When we die, all that stuff dies with you. Somebody else takes it. By the time you actually get to have all the stuff, you leave it to somebody else and they don't want it. Or you can start investing your life to fulfill Torah. Time, use it for Torah. Money, use it for Torah. Why? It's the only thing that's going to protect you from not experiencing what he experienced. He saw firsthand, he was in the Holocaust. Somehow, this truth that he's hearing here, he says, this is what we need to hear. And what he said to me, what he said to me, right now in quiet, because was the scariest part. And he whispered to me in my ear, and he says, why so few people? Why so few people? You know why he said, why so few people? Because if there were more people listening to Rabbi Ilel, Mikalmaya, Rav Wasserman, and all of the rebukers before the Holocaust, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. He went through the Holocaust. He saw it. He know why. He knows why it happened. He didn't say one time when I mentioned the Holocaust is God did it. He didn't say no, no, no. He knows why it happened. He knows very well why it happened. And that's why he's asking, why so few people? Because if there was more before the Holocaust listening to the truth of Torah, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. There wouldn't have been. 
There's two options in the days of Mashiach. Good way, bad way. Good way, everybody does tshuva. Bad way, gogu magog. Disaster. Makes the uh, sages in previous generations had a debate, discussion about different things, and they started talking about the end of times. They started saying about what's going to happen. They said, World War One just happened. It was right after World War One. So World War One was the beginning. The next war is going to make World War One seem like a kindergarten game. Seem like child's play. That's what happened. World War Two made World War One seem like nothing. And they said that Gogu Magog is going to make World War Two seem like child's play. So, I asked the same question. Why so few people? Why so few people? Why are people still wondering, should I give $10 or should I save it for my IRA account? Should I donate the 1000 to the Bet Knesset so they could tell, oh, look, this guy bought an Aliyah for 1000 for 5000 for 50000 or should I donate $20 to go help somebody do tshuva? At the Bet Knesset, everybody has money. Everybody has money to buy Aliyah during the holidays. Everybody has money. Even if you don't have money, you have money. You're going to buy an Aliyah. Why? Because you want to show everybody else you have money. Contest. 500, 5,000, 5 this, 5 this. Everybody wants to show they have money. To save souls from going to the Holocaust, $20. Sorry it's so little. I have more next time. Why so few people? That's what he said. Why so few people? What happened? What happened? Where are they? They're donating in the Bet Knesset, kissing the Sefer Torah, and Hashem says, don't kiss me, just listen to me. So, next week, I don't know if we're going to do a shiur on uh, Sunday or Monday, because there's Chag Tuesday and Wednesday, but I'll try to do my best to do a shiur, probably most likely Monday. If we do a shiur on Monday, Bezat Hashem, Mamash, it's going to be a big, big Mesirut Nefesh to get it done. If we do a shiur Monday, I want each one of you to do everything you possibly can. If you have to beg, beg. Bring at least one, two, three, four, five people with you. Why? I don't want to hear what he said again. I don't want to hear why so few people. Because he knows he saw it. I just dream it. You understand? When the guy saw gay Noam tells you what it looks like, you start listening. You understand? Any questions? Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.